Holy Spirit, we ask that as we spend this time together in your word, you would be speaking through my words, that you would be speaking in each of our hearts. Help us to know and understand what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Matthew 6, verses 7 to 15. This is the bit we skipped last week when we read the verses on either side. We're seven weeks into this series now, this series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and it will take us through to the end of the summer. And one of the things that I hope you're noticing as we go through the Sermon on the Mount together is this pattern that Jesus consistently builds his moral teaching, his teaching about what we should do, on top of his teaching about God. Jesus consistently builds his moral teaching on top of his teaching about God. In other words, according to Jesus, the way we should live has everything to do with who God is. You've maybe noticed this, I hope. Remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus says, you should love your enemies. Why? Because that's what your Father in Heaven does. He sends the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. And if you want to be his children... You should imitate him in that way. Or last week, when you give and pray and fast, you should do it in secret. Why? Because your Father in heaven sees in secret and rewards those who do things for the right reasons. Be perfect, Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect. Why? Because your Father in heaven is perfect. So you can see this pattern that Jesus For Jesus, the starting place in all human morality is to reflect on the character of God. That's how Jesus thinks, and so if we're going to be Christians, that's how we must think too. It's only by learning from Jesus who God is that we can have any hope of understanding how to live properly ourselves. And that same dynamic is at play in our text this morning, as Jesus teaches us how to pray. What we'll see is that Jesus teaches us how to pray, first by teaching us about the God that we're praying to, about who that God is. Because it's the character of God, the character of the God Jesus calls your Father in Heaven, that will determine the shape, the scope, and the attitude of our prayers. So the plan for this sermon is to look at three things that Jesus tells us about our Father and then to reflect on what each of them means for the way that we should pray. So three things Jesus tells us about our Father. Here they are. First, that your Father knows what you need. Second, that your Father has a plan for the world. And third, that your Father forgives your debts. Your Father knows what you need. Your Father has a plan for the world and your Father forgives your debts. So first, your Father knows what you need. Here it is in verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. 
Jesus is drawing a contrast here between the way that Gentiles, that is, all the non-Jewish peoples in the world who worshipped a whole big pile of false gods and goddesses instead of the true God of Israel, Jesus is drawing a contrast between the way that these pagan Gentiles pray and the way that he wants us Christians to pray. And brothers and sisters, it's so important for us to understand just how different the God we worship is from the gods and goddesses of the Gentiles. Huge difference. For one thing, the gods and goddesses worshipped by the many nations that neighbored the ancient Jews, they were not lovers of humankind. They weren't holy, just, or perfect. They weren't good. As you already know, if you know any of these old Greek or Roman myths, right, these gods and goddesses could be every bit as selfish, as vain, as lustful, as petty, as the worst human beings. And so what did that mean for the Gentiles' prayer? Well, it meant that when they prayed to their gods for help, they couldn't just appeal to the good natures of the ones they were praying to. No, they really needed to get them motivated. They needed to get them up off their butts to, to do something for them. They needed to flatter, to impress, sometimes even to bribe their gods. The Old Testament records a great example of this in 1 Kings chapter 18. And the story there is that Elijah, the prophet of the true God, faces off in a challenge against the 450 prophets of Baal, a false god. Elijah has an altar to his god with a sacrifice on it, and the 450 prophets of Baal have an altar to their god with a sacrifice on it. And the contest is to see who can get their god to send down fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. The prophets of Baal go first, and from morning until noon, and then even into the afternoon, they're crying out in loud voices, all 450 of them, crying out to Baal. And they're even cutting themselves with swords and lances so that they're bleeding all over the place. This is the kind of stuff that the Gentiles thought they had to do in order to get their God's attention and to win their favor. Long, loud prayers with big crowds of people doing gruesome stuff to appeal to the strange whims of the gods. Well, of course, after all of that, nothing happened. The 450 prophets of Baal couldn't get their god to answer them. No fire came down from heaven. And Elijah, the prophet of the true god, took his turn next. And he says a simple prayer, just a couple of sentences. And he asks the Lord to answer so that his people might know that he's really God. That's it, just a simple prayer. And immediately fire fell from heaven, and even though Elijah's whole altar and sacrifice and wood had been soaked full of water, right away the fire consumes the sacrifice and the wood and the altar with it. And I think this amazing story illustrates for us very nicely what Jesus is talking about here. Elijah doesn't need to use big fancy words, he doesn't need to use a long speech to his God. He doesn't need to make some kind of extreme performance to impress his God. He just asks. And God, his Father in heaven, just answers. The Gentiles think they will be heard for their many words, but don't be like them, Jesus says. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You know, maybe some of us hear that and we think, okay, so why doesn't He just give us what we need without us having to ask Him? It's a good question. Well, first of all, I think if we really understood what's going on every moment of every day, we would see that God is constantly providing for our needs without us asking. It's God who causes, as Jesus said, the sun to rise and the rain to fall on all of us. Who causes the ground to keep bringing forth the food that we need every day. Who causes the world to keep on spinning. It's God who upholds the whole universe moment by moment. Reality would stop being real, just like that, if God were not continually sustaining it. The fact is that ever since he first created this world out of nothing, our Father in Heaven has been providentially caring for all his creatures and meeting their needs, even without anyone needing to ask. In all sorts of ways that we mostly take for granted, our Father does provide for many of our needs without us even asking. But we have another kind of need as well. Another kind of need that our Father cannot possibly meet without getting us involved. And that's our need for a relationship with Him. If you think about this in human terms, what a child needs from her parents is not just food, shelter, clothing, toys, and so on, but also, and probably even more fundamentally, care, company, instruction, conversation, love. And these are the same things that we need from our Creator. So Jesus doesn't teach us to call God our service provider in heaven, or our retail distributor in heaven, but our Father in heaven. That's because the relationship that God wants to have with us isn't only about providing us with the stuff that we need, but even more fundamentally, it's about providing us with the loving relationship that we need. It's precisely because God already knows our deepest needs that he requires us to talk with him, to address him in prayer, to voice our needs to him day by day. Our Father in heaven knows that there's nothing we need more urgently than we need relationship with him, conversation with our Creator. So when Jesus says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him, the point is not, your Father already knows what you need, so don't even bother praying. No, the point is, your Father already knows what you need, so just go ahead and ask. He knows what you need, and as our loving Father, he delights in giving us what we need. So whatever it is that we think we need, why shouldn't we just talk with him about it? So there's our first point. Your Father in heaven knows what you need, and he delights in giving you what you need. So when you pray, don't worry about impressing him or flattering him or saying it with the right words. Just ask. Just talk to him. Your Father knows what you need. Our second point, your Father has a plan for the world. We hear Jesus emphasize this truth about God in verses 9 and 10 of our text. At the beginning of the model prayer that he teaches his disciples, the prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. 
Pray then like this, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, isn't it amazing how this trio of petitions, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done, lifts us up out of ourselves and our own day-to-day concerns up to the level of God's amazing plans for his whole creation. Of course, it's very important to say that there will always be a place in our prayers for us to bring our day-to-day concerns to God. There's nothing that's ever too small for us to pray to God about. It's okay to pray about your heartbreak or your headache or your lost car keys. But Jesus teaches us when we pray not to start there. Not to start there. The starting place of our prayers isn't what we think we need and what we'd like God to do for us. The starting place of our prayers is the eternal purpose of our Father to glorify his name by bringing his kingdom of perfect righteousness to the whole world through Jesus Christ. Our heavenly Father is not only the creator and sustainer of the world, he is its rightful king. We became rebels against his kingdom when our first parents sinned against his will. But in his surpassing love, he didn't abandon us to be ruled over by Satan, sin, and death. Instead, he maintained a stronghold of his kingdom on earth, first in the form of his people Israel, a single nation, and now in the form of his church, into which he calls people of every nation, Jew and Gentile, as we read in Colossians. By the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, he made a way for us to flee from that rebel kingdom of Satan into the true kingdom of God. So that when Jesus comes again to finally subject all powers and all peoples to himself, we can live and reign with him under his perfect kingship, free from sin and death forever. This is the big story of the Bible, right? The plot that overarches all of world history. The plan of salvation that God prepared before the foundation of the world. And knowing that our Father has such a plan for the world should change the way we pray. By refocusing us, not on what we would like him to do, but on the amazing thing he has already done and is already doing through Jesus Christ. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. By praying this way, we acknowledge God's holy and perfect will must come first, not only in our prayers, but in our whole lives. By praying this way, we ask God to accomplish our salvation and to bring his kingdom just as he's promised, acknowledging that we and our neighbors desperately need him to do that for us. Because unless God does that for us, unless he saves us according to his perfect plan, it's not going to matter all that much whether or not he helps us find our car keys. So your father knows what you need, and your father has a plan for the world. Our third point Your Father forgives your debts. 
The forgiveness of debts is what dominates the last part of our text this morning. You can see that forgiveness language all over the place in those last verses. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus teaches us to pray in verse 12. And then he explains this way of praying in verses 14 to 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here, the link between what God is like and how we should behave is uncomfortably explicit. It's very close, isn't it? God forgives, so we should forgive too. And if we don't, well, maybe he won't either. Yikes. It's a scary saying of Jesus. Well, before we get too freaked out by that part of Jesus' teaching, let's back up to make sure that we understand the amazing first part of his teaching here. Namely, that when we pray, we can ask our Father to forgive our debts. And he will. We can ask our Father to forgive our debts, and he will. This is an amazing thing. What kind of debts is Jesus talking about here? Principally about the debt that we owe to God because of our sin. A debt that we can never repay. Remember, our Creator lovingly made each of us in His image, with capacities to imitate His perfect goodness in our lives. He blessed each of us with gifts, both natural and spiritual, that we could use to glorify Him and to love each other. And he placed us here in this beautiful garden of a world full of rich resources, which we might again have used to glorify him and to care for our neighbors. Through his prophets and his apostles, he's continually been teaching to us all about himself and about his good ways. So doesn't the God who did all that have a right to expect that we would use all that he gave us well? That we really would love him with our whole heart and with all our soul and all our mind. That we really would love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the fruit that God was seeking, the good outcome toward which he had invested so much. But that's not how we repaid him, is it? All of us here today who are Christians, we know, I hope, that we are sinners. And we don't really understand what that means unless we can admit that we have not lived as we ought to have lived. That we have not made the most of what God has given us to work with. Very far from it. Instead of loving him with our whole hearts and souls and minds, we've set our hearts to love and worship self. We've dedicated our souls to pursue fleeting pleasures. We've used our minds mainly to try and justify ourselves. Instead of loving our neighbors as ourselves, we daily treat other people as if they were there to serve us, treating other human beings as little more than animals or machines. I know that this is a harsh portrait I'm painting of us here. I think it's the portrait the Bible paints of us. I hope that you can recognize it as a true portrait of who you and I were and would still be 
apart from Jesus Christ. Our whole life of sin is a deep transgression against our good creator. It's an insulting rejection of the good life for which he created us. Our Father gave to us generously, but we never gave him back the thanks and the glory he deserved. Instead of putting the gifts that he gave us to profitable use for our neighbors, we wasted them, we squandered them on ourselves. And in that sense, we owe our Father a grave and enormous debt. But Jesus teaches us that our Father who is in heaven knows what we need and has a plan to save us. And so we can just ask him, forgive us our debts. When we ask our Father to forgive our debts, he says, yes, yes, I forgive your debt. What you wasted by your life of sin, I will make up for by Jesus' life of perfect obedience. The image of God that you lost and wasted in your rebellion against me, I will restore in you by my Holy Spirit. I'll clear you of the debt. I'll cover it myself. And I'll even restore you from spiritual poverty back to spiritual wealth. Yes, I forgive you of your debts, and you don't need to worry about them anymore. That's what our Father says when we ask. Amazing. Amazing. Brothers and sisters, we have a Father in heaven who forgives us our debts. And so, of course, of course, this should change the way that we respond to those who owe a debt to us. Right? When we understand the gravity of our debt and the cost that God himself paid in order to wipe it away, how can any of the debts that we owe to each other, that others owe to us, not seem tiny in comparison? Whether it's literally a debt of money that someone owes to you, or of respect that someone failed to pay to you, or of love that someone failed to show you when they should have. What can that person possibly owe you that you yourself did not also owe to God a hundred times over? And he forgave. This is why Jesus teaches us also to forgive others. And notice this, Jesus doesn't just teach us to forgive others, but also to tell God that we're going to forgive others when we pray. Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus doesn't just want you to do it. He wants you to say that to God, to tell God that you have forgiven your debtors. Why? I think that's because Jesus knows that forgiving others is one of the things we absolutely need God's help with. Forgiving others is one of the many things we need God's help with. One of the many things that we need to talk with him about because we can't do it very well on our own. This terrifying thing that Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 about how if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us either, 
It isn't meant to scare us away from God. It's meant to drive us to God in prayer. If you're having trouble forgiving someone for some evil that they did to you, Jesus isn't saying that you need to sort that out on your own before you can dare to approach God in prayer. No, quite the opposite. He's saying that you need to work that out with your Father in prayer. We pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us so that when we talk to our Father about forgiveness, we can never leave the prayer time without also being challenged to grow in our own forgiveness of others, in our own love of neighbor. Our Father's goal here, as in everything, is to make us more like himself to make us more perfect reflections of his perfect love and righteousness and forgiveness. So there you have it, our three points. The three things that Jesus teaches us about who the Father is that should also change the way we are and the way we pray. Your Father knows what you need. Your Father has a plan for the world. And your Father forgives your debts. Well, brothers and sisters, with a father like that, let's come to him in prayer together now. Our Father in heaven, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that you have a plan for the salvation of the world. We know that you know what we need even before we ask you, so we pray, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And where we're still struggling to forgive our debtors, help us, we pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Save us from the kingdom of Satan and bring us into the kingdom of your Son. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.